Good morning, Evergreen. Before opening your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 1, I want to hang out for just a second in 1 Timothy 4. Always the New Testament reading is somehow associated with what I'm reading in the Old Testament. Or if I'm preaching in the New Testament, I'm going to have an Old Testament reading to show that this Bible that we're reading is one Bible written by the same author. And we see complementary truths within it. And did you notice there's a couple of things I want you to point, point out to you from 1 Timothy 4. Notice that first there's two different errors. That they were to avoid, uh, that they were to depart from, that they were to not uh, go after. That were called the doctrines or the teachings in the ESV of demons. And both of those errors are related to stuff that we find in Genesis chapter 1. He's talking about the doctrine of demons of those who forbid marriage. Of those who, who say that you need to abstain or not take from certain foods. What we have here is a, affirming of God's word that all these problems would have been dealt with if they just listened to one thing that came from Genesis chapter 1, which is in verse 4. For everything created by God is good, which is a repeated refrain in Genesis chapter 1. God makes something and he declares it good. These things... Ignoring these foundational truths that we find in Genesis chapter 1 is called, verse 7, silly myths. And as I said last week, we're not above the culture. We still imbibe from the same culture that still has and believes in its own mythology. And the mythology that I would like to address this morning, the subject of the sermon, really is the mythology that is evolution. And what's the solution that Paul prescribes? He tells Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Why is that the solution? The solution is because this is the very nature of faith that Christians have. Our confession tells us in Westminster Confession is chapter 14. That by the faith that we have, the faith that Christ gives us, the faith that we have in trusting God by the power of the Holy Spirit, is the kind of faith that believes to be true whatever is revealed in the Word of God. For what reason? For the authority of God Himself speaks therein. Our faith then acts differently depending on the particular passage. We yield obedience to the commands. We take the threats seriously. And we believe and hope in the promises that God holds out to us. Be thinking about that as we read. Now let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. And we're just going to read what happens on day 3 of creation. And be asking yourselves, what is God calling you to have faith in, to trust in. 
This is God's holy and inerrant word, starting at verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Maybe we could sum- summarize what the faith that we are being called to as Christians in the whole chapter, Genesis chapter 1, instead of hearing my summary of it, well, we can just look to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, verses 1 through 3 says, Now faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people received of old received their condemnation Commendation. I always mess up that word for some reason. Commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. If that's what we're called to as a whole, to see and believe that God is the one who created the words, the world, that he created it out of something invisible, which we're told in Genesis is by the word of his power. If that matters, 1 Timothy 4 tells us that not only is Genesis 1 as a whole chapter important, but even the particulars are important. It's important to believe that he created the world good. It's important that we believe that he's one who actually designed the universe. In the particulars, it all matters. And the problem that we're going to wrestle with, that's going to make us seem like knuckle-dragging Neanderthals, is when we believe in something so counter-cultural. When we say that God's word actually speaks to the title of this sermon, The Origin of Life. And there's one way that we can deal with it. We might be able to say, well, this is poetry, and this is actually not talking about an order of events in history, but instead this is just a topical arrangement saying that God created everything. But I'm not going to re-explain myself over the past couple weeks to say that, no, this is history. It has the form of history. It has the content, the grammar of history. And what we have here in particular, though, is not a 
just a detailed scientific view of the history of the world as it's being laid out for us. But God is showing us the importance parts that we need to know as fallen creatures about the origin of our universe and about the origin of life in particular. And he tells us in the origin of life, it's causation, the first point, the capabilities of life, and it's kinds. And I'll leave the last one to figure out because those ones actually sort of sound similar, even if I don't have the spelling all. We're going to talk about the causation, the capabilities, and the kinds of life that are being created here. You know, there's a, a typical phrase that I've heard, and probably you've heard it before. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? And this question is actually pretty hard to answer if you think about it. If we don't have, just pretend a moment that we don't have Genesis. Isn't it true that every adult is necessary for there to be children? That you have to have parents before you have children who come? You have to have a chicken that has the capability of producing egg before you ever get an egg. And on the flip side... Every person born was a baby at one point. What we're given here is a revelation from God's world, world, word. There we go. Too much coffee this morning. Revelation from God's word that tells us what we wouldn't have known by reason alone. Which is when God created the wor world. I'm going to keep going back and forth on this, I'm sure. That, in verse 11, God spoke it into existence. And what came into being? Well, the vegetation. Life came into being. And this life was made of plants and trees. And the trees had fruit on it. And the seed was already in the fruit. We're told here explicitly the chicken came before the egg. And the important part that God wants us to see specifically is that God's the cause of it. That the origin of life was not this natural phenomena. It wasn't something that happened by mere mechanics of the universe that God designed. That the same way God created and said, let there be light... And light came from nothing. Now God is creating plants. But instead he's doing it out of a mediary. He's using a medium. He's empowering the earth to have it within it the power as his instrument to spring forth the plants that he's put there. And this shouldn't be too surprising. Because animals are going to be created this way. Mature. The chicken before the egg. I know I'm calling trees chickens, but you just got to bear with me on this. That Adam is going to be born how? Mature. Fully developed. With all the re reproductive capacity built into him. And that's the next point. That we're talking about causation here. But what is what we have in built in nature that God made is life with 
its capacities for generating life, being built into the creation itself. One thing that oftentimes gets us with this is this appearance of age. And I just want to say that what we're looking at here is not the appearance of age so much as the appearance of maturity that now, and the way things normally function now, that comes with age. God did not build the universe with this seeming age that was meant to deceive us, but instead he created it mature which is the stage that we see now that comes as a result of development. What we don't see here is God making use of something, a mechanism like evolution. For God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, and then what happened next? Verse 11, and it was so. And once again, I don't have time to go and recover all the ground I previously covered. That the point that one of the points that Moses is trying to make is that this is happening in a week. 24-hour periods. There's not room here for evolution to do its work as a mechanism. You know, there's many evangelical Christians today, and I would say actually most Christians who call themselves evangelical believe that God used the mechanism of evolution to create life on earth. Unfortunately, people who believe those things, or say they believe that, usually don't want, know one of the two things, or maybe even both. They either do not understand what evolution actually teaches, or they don't understand what the Bible teaches, or they don't understand either. And they don't see how it connects or how it really matters, so they don't really care to do the diligent research and actually search out an answer to this. Let me provide to you the definition. This is, comes from the PCA study report that I'll quote twice, actually. They, in that document, quoted the National Association of Biology Teachers and says, quote, The diversity of life on Earth is the outcome of evolution, an unpredictable and natural process of temporal descent with genetic modification that is affected by natural selection, chance, uh, chance historical contingencies, and changing environments. If you didn't catch all that, let me just go ahead and say what the main points are. That all the diversity of life, notice the claim here is not about the origin of life itself, how it came into being, because that's not what evolution describes. Evolution describes the process by which we see all the variety of life that we have on earth. And the mechanism that we witness is unpredictable natural processes. The mechanism of evolution, by very definition, is not supernatural, but natural. And unfortunately, as we've looked at previous weeks, what we don't have is the time. 
And not only do we not have the time, but there's a lot of theological problems that come with this. I appreciate people like Peter Enns, who is a uh, professor, or used to be a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. He is no longer a professor there for reasons like this. He advocates for theistic evolution, and he says, quote, Evolution cannot be grafted onto evangelical Christianity without the recasting of our entire theology. He said that as a positive thing. He said, because we know evolution's true, that means we must reorient our entire theology. Let me reiterate again. I was, I was a biology major and a chemistry minor, and this stuff really excites me. I'm not going to go in depth in here. I'm just going to leave you with the answer of, if you believe that theistic evolution was the mechanism that God used to create the world... You either don't understand evolution or you don't understand the Bible and what it teaches or you don't understand either. People who know a lot about either topic or are committed and devoted to either topic see that. What I'm not saying here, and maybe this will be my last foray into biology so I don't uh, overwhelm anybody, and I don't think I will, because you guys are very smart people. The PCA did a fantastic study report in 1999 on this subject, and said that microevolution, as the measure of genetic change over time with variance within certain kinds, is consistent with the teaching of Scripture. But macroevolution, which postulates a history of these changes as an explanation of all the diversity of life on earth, that's what conflicts. There's this difference between that my ecology professor talked about. That when we are doing empirical science, as we are doing science and getting data... What we're looking at is proximate mechanisms. We're looking at how things work right in front of our face. That's the data that we're collecting. But what we always want to get to is ultimate consequences. Which that's where the role of the interpreter plays. And that wants to make sense of the data. Wants to understand how does this all fit together. And what I want to remind you dear Christian is that the answer to the why question... The answer to why things exist and how things exist in the story of history is going to be fundamentally different for the Christian than it is for the unbeliever. God made this world with not just from the egg, the evolutionary story, but instead started with the chicken. And he built in there reproductive capabilities. And while we know more about this now than I think is maybe intended by Moses, he used language that communicates this inbuilt reproductive capacity. And he uses the language of a seed. And by the use of a seed, there's two different kinds of plants. And this is life's kinds, that third point. Life's 
kinds. That you have these seeds, and the word seed is repeated ten times in Genesis chapter 10. And what these seeds produce, repeated also ten times in Genesis chapter 1, is the phrase, according to their kind. That God endowed creatures, life, with self-replication capabilities. But their reproductive toolkit is by its very nature not without limits. There is a principal boundary that separates here life, plant life, from what we'll see being created on day five, birds life, fish life, and then on day six, land animal life, and us But you know when we think about scripture, that seed theme actually carries throughout the book of Genesis. And one of the individuals that we follow throughout the book of Genesis is the seed of Abraham. And we follow it until we eventually see who that seed was referring to in our family history. That seed of Abraham being Christ himself. See, even ancient people knew... That you don't get birds from goats. Trees don't birth fishes. Birds don't birth fungus. That there's an inbuilt design there. And the mechanism, now that science has caught up with this, is we see that this is genetics. That there is information packaged like a seed. When it's planted into the ground. And it always produces the thing that's encoded in it. And you know what? Our code is the same toolkit that builds. It's a, it's a DNA used with RNA. That combination being the very code for all life. Plant life, fungus, animals, you name it. And while the code is different, the basic ingredients are the same For all life. But the kind of life that we're looking at here is plant life. Or really, really, as Dr. Currid says, that what we have presented to us is vegetation divided into two parts. Plants and fruit trees. These two terms represent all agricultural and horticultural. Man, I'm going to mispronounce a lot of words with this much coffee. Plant life. That this term, the reason why he's talking about the kind of plant life that plant life that's being focused on here is the kind of plant life that in Genesis 20, chapter one verses twenty nine and thirty are going to be the food for his creatures. This is not animate life. The kind of life that's being created here, when we think about death before the fall. Well, before the fall, there was lots of plant death, or at least would have been, depending on how long Adam would have lived. But not all life is created the same. The point of difference here is that we have life that's created, life with genetic packaging that produces its own kinds. And yet this life does not have what the Hebrew says is a soul, nephesh, living life. That's going to be called of the animals. 
That's going to be the term that's applied. Living animals that have, and the word there literally is soul. For the birds, for the fish, and for all the animals that fill the land, including us. There is something about us that we are creatures, that we are similar to the world around us. We are fellow creatures. The point of difference in humanity is going to be not that we have souls and have life that animate our bodies. The point of difference is that we are made in the image of God that imbues us with value and worth and dignity, a dignity that plants do not have You know, the thing, the problem with mythologies is no one likes to be lied to, do they? No one likes to believe a lie, let alone base their entire life on a lie. When I listen to the unbelieving world, it's, my wife has been listening to a lot of health podcasts, and she's been really getting me a really healthy diet. But not all diets are created equal. And I don't know much. But one thing I do know is that when there's something called the paleo diet, I might love eating meat, nuts, and berries. That sounds wonderful to me. If that's the diet, I'll, t I'll eat it. But when you see that that idea is based on the premise that that's how human beings and the stuff that they ate for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, maybe up to 200,000 years, and they have this idea that agriculture was this later development and that our bodies really crafted for nuts and berries and meat. Let's just go ahead and make things easy and say that their history is wrong, which means that while they might have the benefit of being healthier by eating meat, meats and berries, that's God's grace. It's not because of the right thinking. And the reality is, is some lies that we believe are more or better used to manipulate us than others and have worse consequences. If you believe in some lies, that there is no God, that the world was just a random occurrence, that life was spontaneously just happened on this world and probably spontaneously happened on another world. When we believe these lies, this is the kind of doctrine of demons that Paul was referring to that causes us, in Paul's language, to devote ourselves no, no longer to Christ, even though we once were devoted to Christ, as 1 Timothy 4 told us, but causes us to be devoted to other things. We should believe people who professed faith at one point in time when they say they were once devoted to Jesus, or at least their self-understanding, it seemed that way to them that they were devoted to Jesus, but then later they weren't. And they devoted themselves to something else, to a different teaching. One that probably gave them a lot of moral latitude to live however they want. Or maybe they just never heard the truth of what God's word teaches defended properly 
And they said, well, I guess what I believed was a lie and are deceived that way by the devil. But either way, it's still deception. The cause of life, the capabilities of life, and the kinds of life, all as how they are described, does not fit with the modern mythology of evolutionary history. Not that we can't look to scientists to tell us very good things about the proximate mechanisms, but we shouldn't be surprised when people who reject God's law, reject God's design in the world, also reject the how of God's creation. And the last thing that I want to see about life's design here, the origin of life, is we see life's goodness. We've seen it three times so far. That what God looked at and what he saw was good. There's some fundamental problems when we imbibe in an evolutionary worldview, the lens by which we interpret the world. To see death and sin as natural. That quote from Peter Enns that I read to you, that the that understanding evolution cannot just be tacked on to Christianity without modifying the entire system. One thing that Peter Enns applied that to is our understanding of sexual um, identification. Saying if it's natural, if God made us this way, then it can't be wrong because that is part of the good that God called us in the beginning. We have to realize, Christians, as we look at the world, that we're not looking at the world as it should be. We are broken. Don't we all have on our souls, it cries out to us that things aren't the way it should be? That cancer, while natural now, is part of the curse, not a part of the good that God called it in the beginning? That the food that God made us is part of the good. But shouldn't it maybe tone down our hubris as we... Now, if I was against uh, paleo diets before, let me just hit the other side. Isn't it, a little, isn't it show a little bit of pride in us when we think we can tamper with food? And think we know all the different repercussions of it and say that it's going to have no effect? It makes sense on both sides. Those who say organic only means that it's healthy have the problem of, well, we don't live in a Genesis 1 world, but we live in a post-Genesis 3 world. And those who think we can modify food without end and make our food better run into the hubris of not understanding that we don't have the data. We need to be honest and say we don't know all the effects that it could make. That something like being able to know how food is going to affect every part of the body that's something that only God's mind could really comprehend and get their minds around. This should humble us. This should show us God's goodness of his creation. What does faith in God's word require of us here? I can sympathize with people like Hugh Ross. 
Hugh Ross, he's an old earth creationist. He advocates for design. And he says, and this is about the age of the world, but I think it applies equally to evolution. He says, I see the community of scientists, including astronomers and astrophysicists, as a group to be evangelized. He calls it an ethnos, to not misquote him. He said, God calls us to reach out to them as he does to every group on the planet. And though he warns us that childlike simplicity of trusting in Jesus will be a stumbling block for many, we have unwittingly placed another barrier in their path, the dogma of a few thousand-year-old earth. And I cannot imagine a notion more offensive to this group. As I said last week, embarrassment is the gateway drug for theological accommodation and denial. We can rightly as Christians affirm and commend people's sincere desire to reach the unconverted intellectuals of our world. We must recognize also that they're in their own minds not thinking they're lessening the truth of Scripture. I'm going to give them the Christian benefit of the doubt in that area. But evolution has too high of a price tag for us as Christians to buy. The price tag is too high. And there are two really good reasons why we cannot follow them in this endeavor. First, it's because this reading is, uh, imports an alien procedure into this text. And honestly, I have a large book I brought with me if you have any questions about this or follow-up. Let me just say that the science related to evolution is not worthy of your trust. Whether it's in the fields of embryology, genetics, geology... It's not worthy of your trust. Come and talk to me after service to get that. But secondly, when we, tell, when we accommodate the truth to make God's word more palatable to people, what we're unwittingly doing is obscuring the pure light of God's word. The word that shines into not just how we live our lives, but our understanding of the space-time reality. It shines into our reality of the one who is controlling it. God's word to sinners calls for not just of a repentance of our wills and our desires, it calls for a repentance of all our intellect. The Bible asks us and commands us to change the way we think about the world. And when we accommodate God's truth to make it more palatable to people, what we rob them of is a call to submit their lives to Christ fully. To leave some of their thoughts captured and captivated. To not give it all to Christ. That's a dangerous place to be in. We don't call people to a halfway repentance. We call them to turn to the living God and submit their lives fully to him. 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we look at creation, we see what Proverbs 8, verses 22 through 31 tell us. That the design of creation reflects the wisdom of your mind. And Lord, as we know that a methodological study should yield results that are consistent with your wisdom, with your truth, for you are the author of both, Lord, we confess that we are part of a world and sometimes we even find ourselves rejecting your design. Lord, we pray for ourselves that we would not live by lies, that we would not miss the goodness of your creation and the goodness of the God, you who made it by the word of your power. And Lord, when we encounter truth claims from different people, that command our trust and command our loyalty. When we find truth claims in conflict, may we always, as your followers, not submit what the Bible says to be modified to the teachings of some other claim, but that we would adjust our understanding of all else in light of what your scriptures truly teach. That we would look and read the book of natural revelation in which you wrote all the laws of the universe. That we would read them in light of your special revelation. The book which we hold in our hands now. And Lord, may we truly believe that the fear and trust of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And that we would be willing to consider ourselves and count ourselves fools for the sake of Christ. Lord, it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, let's respond to God's word by singing his praises.